Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality. Welcome to Hacking the Self. This is Adrian Baker. I hope you're doing well wherever you are. I am just recovering from a cold, which you perhaps can tell from my voice, and you can certainly tell it a little bit from the interview that I did today because I sort of lost my voice at a, a couple of points, but all good, doing pretty well in the grad scheme of things, and glad to be back home. I've been traveling around India, southern India, the last couple of weeks with a scholar of religious studies, Douglas Brooks, which was a really fantastic trip. It was my first time to India proper. I'd been to Goa before for a yoga teacher training and Goa is great, but it's, you know, you're just hanging out on the beach and you don't really get a feel for India. And so this is my first trip there. And wow, was it an experience to say the least. It was certainly one of the more eye-opening and worthwhile trips that I've ever taken. India's, you know, and I went on it organized group, which really made things run a lot more smoothly, but it was still, it can just be very challenging and had some very difficult moments, but also just some of the most incredible eye-opening, heart-opening moments as well. So I would definitely put that on people's bucket list, especially those of you who like to travel. It is something I think one person once said to me that everyone should go to India once. And he was saying this as someone who didn't particularly want to go back, but he really appreciated the value in it. And I could see what he meant by that. You know, I think getting pushed outside of our comfort zone is something that is important to leading a much more multi-dimensional sort of a life that's richer with different perspectives. And going to India will absolutely do that for you. But um, had a great trip, and that all said, I am very glad to be home. So I am incredibly excited about today's guest. I just finished a fascinating conversation with her. Mary Taylor is someone who I'm proud and honored to call a teacher. She is a truly remarkable woman, as is her husband, Richard Freeman. They teach Ashtanga Yoga together. And they're both two beautiful human beings who also are a great example of how a really great couple is often someone with whom you share similar interests, but also complement each other in different ways. And Richard and Mary really complement each other nicely. And so I'm very excited that I'm going to be releasing interviews with both of them back to back. I Initially, I planned an interview with Mary, and then Richard really nicely offered to do an interview as well. So you'll get a feel for both of them and what they have to offer. Their workshops and retreats sell out way in advance. I've been to a workshop with Richard where it was literally just a high school gym packed to the back with mats, and you're pressed right up against each other. And I think after hearing both of them speak, you will probably have a sense of why they're so popular with so many people. So my first conversation today is with Mary, and we touched on a number of topics. You'll be able to see it in the show notes. But one thing I love about Mary is that 
you know, she has a real strong grounding in these teachings, but also she has just a real pragmatism to her that an inability to distill complex ideas in a very accessible, clear way. And she did that again in our interview. So I'm sure that you will find much of what she had to say interesting and insightful, as I certainly did. So a little background on Mary. Mary has been studying yoga for about 40 years, but it was about 30 years ago that she came across the style of yoga that she still practices today, which is Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga, which is a system developed by Sri K. Patabi Joyce, um, with whom Richard and Mary studied in India and in the U.S. She continues to study and practice yoga and Buddhist teachings with great enthusiasm and inquisitiveness with an eye on how the residue that is produced on the mat and cushion and through these teachings informs and supports all aspects of everyday life. Mary travels and teaches with her husband, Richard Freeman, and also with the caregiver and hospital setting as part of the core faculty of the Being with Dying program from Upaya Zen Center, as well as the Urban Zen Integrative Therapy Trainings. In 1988, she co-founded with Richard the Yoga Workshop in Boulder, Colorado. Mary is also the author of three cookbooks and the co-author of What Are You Hungry For? Women, Food, and Spirituality and The Art of Vinyasa. The Art of Vinyasa is the latest book from Richard and Mary, and I would highly recommend that to anyone who's interested in the practice of yoga. So... With that said, and no more ado, I give you my conversation with Mary Taylor. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. All right. Well, excellent. Well, thanks again, Mary, just for making the time. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. My pleasure. And so we've given folks a little bit about your background, you know, just at the start of the show, but I would love for you to start us out by just telling us a little bit about your path to yoga. How did you first come across yoga? Well, I first started doing yoga when I was a student at university, and that was in the early 70s. And my dearest friend, who actually is, I'm still very, very close to, whom I admired deeply at the time. She was doing yoga and she suggested I try it. And it, I, you know, it was way different in those days. It was very, very, very sort of off the grid. And I had a sort of general Hatha yoga teacher while I was there at university and found that had such an amazing impact on my stress levels that I, you know, I, I, I just loved it. And I only went, maybe it was a class that was maybe once a week. It wasn't that long a class, but there were certain parts like shoulder stand that I then did for years when I would feel, you know, kind of overstressed at work or something like that. So it was really a thing that helped me with stress in the beginning. And then every place I'd go, and after that, as I moved around doing different things, I would find a teacher and get a little more from it. And then at one point in maybe the early 80s, I had moved to Boulder and 
was thinking about doing some yoga because of the stress level again, because I had two jobs and I'm sort of a type A personality and sort of checked in with someone to figure out who might I do yoga with in Boulder. Richard Freeman's name came up. So I started taking classes with him. And again, it was just sort of maybe once or twice a week, which I did for about three years. And what I found at that point was that I became, you know, in my type A personality, the great thing that happened was beyond the stress reduction, it made me more efficient. So that I kept thinking at first, how am I going to find time to have a whole hour or an hour and a half to do yoga? And then what I discovered was that by doing yoga, I actually became more efficient in my job. And I could sneak out at lunch and sneak out in the evenings and do these classes and get actually more done. So it was an interesting path in. It wasn't sort of this spiritual calling or a calling for fitness. It was one for anxiety, you know, reduction, and then being able to do more work, which is kind of, you know, counter to what one would think one would get into yoga for. So that's how I started. And then like many students, what happened is that the more I did it, the more I saw the other layers of it that are part of the practices and that are also part of the impact. And so over the course of the next, you know, 35, 40 years, I got hooked. So that's how I got got into it. And so I'd done other kinds of yoga, sort of generic hatha yoga, which is for a number of years, maybe 12 to 15 years, just kind of sporadically. And after a certain amount of time, Richard, who at the time was just beginning to do Ashtanga yoga, he, through his classes, introduced us to Ashtanga. And then that form really worked with my personality and where I was within the yoga practices as far as uh, seeing the different aspects to what yoga has to offer, etc. And that's when it kind of became a much more central part of my life. For those who aren't familiar with Ashtanga, can you define, in, in your view, what distinguishes Ashtanga from other schools? Sure. Well, Ashtanga means eight limbs. And actually, pretty much any modern-day yoga most types of yoga that, that are out there these days, they approach the different limbs that are talked about in Ashtanga yoga. So the different limbs are things like your ethical, your ethical behavior, your postures, what are called asanas, the breathing techniques, what is called pranayama, things like meditation. And then, so it's, there are these different aspects that you study in, in different ways. And what is called Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga in this day and age is a form of physical asana or posture practice that has these eight aspects, these eight limbs to it, but that also the distinguishing quality to it is that it is designed around specific series of postures that are called like the primary, intermediate, advanced series, etc. And those series are practiced on a daily basis, and it's the same series over and over and over. So, for instance, I actually started doing Ashtanga in 
1987 and or 88, 87, 88. And in that, since that time, I've done these different series again and again and again. Of course, sometimes I do other kinds of exercise or counter yoga, you know, anti-yoga things where I'm moving in different ways. But for my daily practice, this has been what I've done during that time. So beyond the fact that you have these particular prescribed postures, and in each series, there are sun salutations, which are kind of a classic thing that anyone who's seen someone do yoga has probably seen, where you're sort of raising your hands over your head and then and then doing an upward dog and a downward dog, etc. So there's sun salutations and then specific standing postures. And then what a group of postures that would be categorized as the postures of that particular series. And then the finishing postures. So each series has the same, you know, beginning postures and ending postures. It's the part that's in the middle that's different. And the theory behind them is that those different series um, have different impacts on the body, uh, cleaning out the breathing system or grounding you or making you strong, etc. But to me, the part that's most fascinating is that when you practice over a longer period of time, the actual series of postures themselves becomes far less important than the attitude you have in doing the postures. And that attitude is cultivated through what we call internal forms of the practice, meaning the fact that the all of the foundation of Ashtanga is based on the idea that you move in sync with the breath, and that you have a particular gazing point. So in other words, as you do an expansive movement, you're inhaling. And as you do contracting movements, you're exhaling. And you work with a very calm and smooth breath. So over a period of time, as you're practicing, you become more skilled at the actual movements that you're doing. And so it becomes easier and easier to have control of the breath, which actually is what pranayama is, is that you are controlling the breath. And so in a way, the Ashtanga practice is one where you are doing a moving meditation with pranayama or breathing practices as part of it. And my personal experience with that, and I believe a huge part of it also is tied into the fact that there is a steady gazing point with each posture. And my personal experience with it is that the mind, which, you know, for most of us, I think, and certainly for me, is a thing that just, it kind of has its own plan and or non-plan and it just goes all over the place all the time. And yeah, you can concentrate, but at the same time it's very hard to even know what the next thought is going to be in one's own mind, which is something you notice when you do a sitting meditation practice. That's part of what you notice is that you're sitting there and you think okay, I'm going to have a great sitting practice and just focus on the sound of my breath. And within a second, thoughts have come up. And so what I've experienced through the practice with Ashtanga is that the 
mind's tendency to do that is given space within which to do that. And yet you don't run off into the um, realms of imagination with the thoughts that arise. It's almost as though there's a background of sound, which is the breath, and then there's a background of thought that sort of is this ongoing thought pattern. But because you are moving and you are focusing on some other level of mind, on moving smoothly with the sound of the breath and keeping the gaze steady, the thoughts sort of sort themselves out and are almost like just a background of sensation, just like the breath is and just like the movements are. And I'm not alone in finding that 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 kind of practice, there are two amazing benefits that I've felt from it. And one is that, you know, I might have some problem that I'm trying to solve or some emotional upheaval that I've experienced. And if I do my practice in this way, very often, you know, if I'm trying to think of the answer to something and I then I do my practice, I'm not specifically thinking, well, I'm going to figure out what the answer is. But by the end of the practice, somehow the answer has arisen in my mind. Or the same with the emotions very frequently tend to transmute. And so you it's a processing machine. And for me personally, um, as a young person, and even, you know, now I have the tendency, even though it doesn't happen very often, towards depression. And as a young person, it was quite severe. And for me, this type of form made somehow was a system that allowed my own system to process things in a way that over the course of time, the depression really has pretty much gone away. I have periods of time where I can feel that it's a potential, but it doesn't get me in the same way that it used to. And I've met many other people who've had you know, this form of practice that that also has been true for. So it's been an amazing practice. And I certainly didn't anticipate that when I started doing it. It was just sort of something that, you know, made me feel overall good and made me feel more efficient. So the other aspect that I really love about it is that physically it has carried me through amazing difficulties, both physically in my life, as well as, you know, the things one runs into in 35, 40 year period of time. And, you know, deaths of friends, family, difficulties with people that you know, or worldly situations, and then things just straightforward, like a skiing accident where I ruined my knee, and then giving birth or coming down with a really serious illness that I um, have worked with very carefully and that that the yoga has really held. So it's it's kind of this amazing thing. And that's kind of, that's been my journey with it. That is amazing hearing those benefits. The training the mind is such a powerful tool alone. And that's something that, you know, people often cite, but you don't always hear people talk about what it's done for their depression. So I really appreciate you sharing that because that is really powerful. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, with any of these things, the benefits that it might have and training your mind is a great example, but that it, you know, it's almost like what is written about in some of the, you know, ancient Indian scriptures, etc., is that if you go and try to practice yoga in order to train your mind, it's never going to happen or to solve your depression or to help you get through difficulties in life. You go to it and you just show up for it. And then it does its work kind of in the background. So it's it's like, you know, the text might talk about offering our work without attachment to the fruits of the action. And in a way, that's what it teaches is that you, by simply showing up and doing your practice, whatever form it takes, that you have this consistent support system that if you don't have a specific goal in mind, it finds what, you know, it kind of finds what it needs to help support you with and does its work. But if you try, you know, if you try to make it you know, like if I start to feel a little glum and I think, well, then I'll just do yoga and so I won't feel glum, then I end up, you know, being grumpy. So it's, it's like you just have to say, no, I'm just doing my yoga. <laughs> right. Let's talk about that because this is, I think, a really important point. And I think it's often a source of confusion for many Westerners who come to yoga. I'm also a type A personality. And so <laughs> perhaps we can oh, yay. <laughs> some of the other type A personalities out there. I don't know if you picked up on that, Mary. But um, <laughs> maybe it takes one to know one. But you know, for so many Westerners, one, it's a personality thing. And then I think it's, it's layered. We have a, a there's another cultural layer on top where we come from a society in the West, especially the U.S., where it's really about achievement. You know, we're taught from a young age to set goals and strive for those goals and to be clever and to achieve and to have marks of those achievement that we can show with others. And somehow that's how we get recognition and fulfillment. And when some people come to Eastern philosophy, and I think because I say Eastern philosophies generally, because I think it's a pretty pervasive idea throughout various Indian religions, whether it's Hinduism, Buddhism, or if it's in Taoism, of this notion of sort of not striving, right? And I think a lot of, it's easy for Westerners to look at that and think, well, what are you talking about? That sounds like complacency to me, you know, not sitting. Right. <laughs> so how do you reconcile that, you know, seemingly a paradox where not striving isn't an excuse for complacency and kind of how, how do you reconcile that with your own Western worldview? Yeah. With my own type of personality. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that the big thing is that what exactly what you said is that so much of these Eastern philosophical approaches and practices, so much of them is based on the notion of being able to have a paradoxical view of things. So when we say a big thing that is often talked about in yoga and Buddhism in particular, and others as well, is the idea of not knowing of becoming comfortable with not knowing. And that, as you say, is a very difficult thing for the Western mind to do, or in fact, for any mind. We have 
that uh, part of ourselves, which is the mind. And the mind's sole job in the world is to know. And it is to be able to think. It's how we got here. It's what's gotten us through the world. It's done a good job. So when we come up with the idea of not knowing, it is an immediate threat to our mind because our mind has no other, you know, that's what it's always done. It's that's its job. And in fact, the idea of not knowing is one that isn't, doesn't mean, well, you simply show up and then just wait for something to happen, that you have no idea what is going to ever happen. The idea more of not knowing is that you don't know the outcome of something, but that you are forever, whether it's within a yoga practice or within a relationship with another human being or within your workplace or being a parent, that you have a very strong and decisive idea about what you do know. And then you let that go. But then almost immediately, you come up with another reframed idea. And then you let that go. So it becomes this paradoxical sort of behavior, mental behavior of knowing and and making some sort of conclusions so that you can make sense of things and then letting it go. And a good example I often think of with this is, is personal relationships, where you meet someone, let's say someone you fall in love with, and you have an, an image of who they are and what they mean and to you and, and what they mean in the world and all of this sort of stuff. And then you get to know them. And, and the more you get to know them, the deeper that understanding of who they are becomes, hopefully. But what happens with some relationships, and it actually is a tendency for us to do this with any relationship, is that we meet someone and we have this idea of who they are, and then that's who they are, period. And then we don't notice that they are growing and changing, just as we also are growing and changing. And then one day we notice 10 years later that they're not who we thought they were at all because we have this outdated picture of them. So we knew them at that first moment when we fell in love with them. And then suddenly they're a totally different person because we've not had that picture, let it go, seen them the next moment, let that go, seen it the next moment and so on. And When we have solid ideas about anything that are unwavering and are unquestioning and unquestionable, then we are asking for trouble because we make conclusions based on what is not actually there. And so very often in, you know, relationships like love relationships, let's say, that fail, that's part of what goes wrong is you see the person and you've got an idea of who you think they are or should be or what, you know, what their role as, you know, co-worker, parent, spouse, etc. should be. And they're not matching up with your picture. And then everything goes awry. And so it, that's a very sort of tangible way of understanding it from my perspective what this idea of not knowing really is talking about it's not that you just 
meet someone and then you have amnesia and never remember who they are, and but that you have a very clear picture of who they are, and then you meet them in another circumstance and you get a different picture. And you are always, you know, kind of doing a dance of communication. And whether it's with another human being or with one's own self or with one's own physical activities or mental activities, that's what I think the the idea of not knowing is about. And so it is this paradoxical thing where that takes work. And so from the Western perspective, that is quite foreign. And yet, if you can just start to have little bits of being comfortable with it and realizing that there are many situations that arise throughout your day where you can allow there to be moments where you are waking up to what's actually happening rather than what you think should be happening or or expect to be happening, that things can drop into a deeper level quite remarkably. So, you know, it's not a thing of being lazy at all or lackadaisical. It's a quality of being open and non non-attached to the outcome. And I think part of the difficulty, Western or not, in behaving in that way or interacting with one's circumstances or other beings is that it requires that you as yourself, as your individual uh, self, as your ego, let's say, you have to soften your own definition of that as well and kind of step back in an interaction and let that not dominate. And for the mind, the dissolution of the ego is a terrifying thought because that's what defines us. And so When I work with students or with myself even, one of the things I try to do with with people is to start becoming comfortable with simply being present with whatever happens to happen in any given moment. And that's a slow process. It's not like you jump into the deep end of doing that and then feel comfortable usually. Usually it takes a little bit of like, oh, okay, I'm not going to dissolve if that ha- if I allow myself to soften my own boundaries. And again, within the, this physical system of yoga that I do, for my personality type, which, you know, when I first met my teacher, the first thing he said to me was, you know, you're so stiff. Oh, it's because you have a strong mind. Mm because I couldn't let go of things. I couldn't do that. And at first when he said that, I thought, oh, well, of course, I'm cool. I've got a strong mind. And then I realized like five years later, that was like, no, that's not a compliment. But, you know, that's what for me this physical practice does is that because I am somewhat challenged physically as I do it, I'm just continually having to move in this pattern my mind can't dominate. My mind can be there, but it can't be the dominant force. And so it's for my particular personality has allowed me 
to soften my mind, to hear the sound of the breath, and to feel that sense of, you know, what in yoga would be called prana or breath moving through, you know, just sort of the each cell of the body, the sense that it's doing that, which creates a huge sense of trust in process rather than in outcome. Right. Well, you, your answer there was so rich. I really appreciate it. There are sort of several threads I'd love to kind of pull out. Let's start with, I think you touched on a couple of things that really are the source of, of the discrepancy between the Eastern and Western points of view, or at least perceived differences. And I think part mm-hmm. of it around the not striving, it, it relates to very different views on the ego and non-attachment between mm-hmm. East and West. And so this is really a central point in, in Eastern philosophies. There's a lot of talk about dropping your ego. The ego is something that wants to be dissolved. And, you know, non-attachment is a big part of this. And in the Western worldview, we're taught that a healthy ego in Western psychology, and I asked you this because I know you're a psychology major, is that, you know, a healthy ego is a good thing in attachment theory. And if we don't have strong attachment, right. you know, <laughs> then, then we're in trouble if we don't have attachment. So what is non-attachment in your view or in your worldview and how does that cultivate happiness? Yeah, those are great questions because, I mean, and I think this is actually true in Eastern philosophy as well, but, you know, that it is not that you completely don't have an ego. The ego function is very important. You need to be able to differentiate between yourself and a bus when you're crossing a street and you need to be able to, you know, just as your cells are, you know, their ego function needs to be able to differentiate between the different things that are being allowed in and not allowed in. So ego function is great and it is important. And the problem is when the the ego becomes isolated and isolates you from the the natural order of things which you know is this idea of interconnectedness so again it, it's a paradoxical thing where you have an ego that serves a very fine and important function but there are at this and and as strong as you can be in your ego you need to have the same sense of softness so it's not that it's an either or situation it's that they are not separate it's two ends of one very rich stick that the ego is very strong and defined and clear and decisive and able to i mean what it reminds me of one of the ideas in yoga that is vitally important is discriminating awareness, that you have the ability to cut through the illusion of mind, of separateness, and that, that you, you are this separate entity that is forever going to have to sort of protect yourself, whereas the idea in some ways is that you are part of this bigger organization or organism that is the world, that is the universe, that is all living creatures, that is all sentient beings, all, you know, trees and the earth. And so you are both things at the same time. And so again, it's a paradoxical aspect of things. And 
as is the attachment theory. And, you know, attachment theory is one thing, but of course you, it's not like you don't want to have people in your life, let's say, who you deeply value more than others that you, that you're, loved ones die and you go, oh, well, there goes another one. That's not at all what non-attachment would talk about. It's more that you are not attached, say, to the fruits of your action or not that you recognize even in the sadness and the sorrow of something like a death, that there is more beyond that, that it's all of these things really have this quality of paradox to them, which and you've done yoga quite a bit yourself. And that's one of the things with many forms of yoga, and in particular with postures and breathing exercises that you are introduced to in practices is that the, the idea of embodied paradox, where you have, you're going into a yoga pose, and you have an internal spin in a leg, you know, in order to get in, and then once you're in it, you ground the outer edge of your foot. And so there's an external spin in the leg. And so it's not either an internal spin or an external spin. And you don't stop there. It goes to infinity with this sort of interplay. And so there are topics, you know, things like ego or attachment that are uh, very slippery to try to understand from that point of view of the Eastern perspective of, I think of them less so as non-attachment, but softness in attachment and softening the ego. Because number one, that's less kind of scary sounding. (laughs) And number two, it isn't that you dissolve them totally and then never touch them again. It's a natural part of being human to get attached to things and to have an ego. And so the the ideas i think with some of these thoughts in eastern thought are to to work with the natural state of embodiment and of the mind i think picking up on some of the language you know you've been using and you know a couple of the things you've mentioned letting go a number of times and and just there you talked about you know softening and as i think about that language which i really recognize in you know the literature of various Eastern philosophies, I think what a contrast that serves to sort of the language we hear out of Western culture, especially the United States, oh, right? Dear. So there's a certain energy there. Yeah. And, and having lived in Thailand, and I know you've spent a lot of time here now, both Richard and you have, you can tell there's people are softer here, right? There's a there's a big difference. Yeah. So I'm yeah. thinking about people who are listening to this in the West and the resistance that people might feel even on a subconscious level, I think particularly for men, what does it mean to be soft, but also be strong and, and so soft and powerful? You know, once again, it's, it's a paradox, you know, so how do you hold those? Well, yeah, it is a paradox and it's not something that happens overnight mm-hmm. because And I think one of the examples that to me is a non-threatening example to explain some of these paradoxical things are some of the mythological stories in Indian mythology or Asian mythology or art where you see, say in a piece of art sometimes or in some stories, you see the most demonic creature having 
been transformed coming out of the most blissful, idyllic looking character, and you realize they are one and the same. And so I think the difficulty with any of us from the West and in any of us anywhere, but particularly in the West, and now in particular in the United States, because things are, there is a real rift that is going on with within our country at the moment, is that you know, we need to have our strength. We need to have our defined boundaries, etc. That's what we're being told. And it's dangerous to show your weakness. But the only way you can really be strong is to be familiar with the feeling of weakness, in my opinion, because then you know what the limits of your own capacity are. You know how things can be, you have a sense of depth and solidity and stability. If you, and so in Indian art, let's say, there are these extremes that show up and, or in Jungian philosophy, there are, in psychology, there are archetypes that are extreme archetypes and they show the depth that exists within each of us. So you know, the idea of the shadow, one's own shadow and accepting one's shadow is the side of ourselves that we don't want to see or that we haven't been familiar with or that isn't our dominant side. And if you recognize that that side of yourself makes the side that you are comfortable with, let's say the strong side of yourself, that becoming familiar with the shadow side, which is the weaker side, makes the stronger side stronger. Because this same idea of not separating them out, like not separating yourself from others, is one way we become stronger. Uh, Not thinking of ourselves as having to fight everyone, but having to interact with everyone, there's a sense of an ability to be soft, but strong. Same within one's own psyche. If you see the strength that is your power and and then realize, oh, that becomes, if I have that, then I must have an equally strong uh, soft side. And it doesn't mean you have to go do activities in public that are showing how soft you are, but you just feel comfortable with your wholeness rather than one part of yourself. Then the part of yourself that you feel safe in, let's say the strong side, becomes even more stable because it's got two feet on the ground, the strong side and the soft side. And then, you know, it's this ability to be more actualized and and when you feel the sense of wholeness from something like that, then you can start to not know and not feel threatened by that. In other words, you know that you are so stable in your capacity to just be and to show up. And so it's not a threat to not know what's going to happen necessarily. And what you find is that you're then very able to respond more fully, more quickly, more adeptly, because you are connecting into deeper parts of yourself. And that's, I, from my perspective, that's what these Eastern philosophical points are cultivating. And some of the cultures, like in 
Thailand, which we love so much, it's more ingrained in the culture to be able to feel that sense of, it's almost like a sense of safety. And when you feel that safety, you can go, ah, and, and so there's something genuine about it and something, you know, very, very comfortable. So in my opinion, that's what's actually going on. And that's what would benefit people in the West to be able to, it, it doesn't mean you give up your strength. It means that you deepen it. Boy, I mean, what you said about incorporating our shadow, it really, you know, underline that, you know, is, is fear. And when you think about, we've been talking about the importance of paradox, how so many people just can't stand nuance, you know, and they can't stand nuance right. because <laughs> the mind wants to see things in black and white because w once the mind knows, then it doesn't have to fear the unknown. And I really think about it, you know, and I wasn't planning on going here with politics and, and I don't even say that as a segue <laughs> to that, but just as an example, you know, with the current occupant of the white house and I don't mean this as a bash on him. I really don't. I, I, um, yeah, there may be some good. people who listen to the show who are Trump supporters <laughs> and I respect your viewpoint, even right. when, though I disagree with it strongly. But as I look at mm -hmm. him, I've really come to, uh, my feelings have shifted from, at least on most good days, from strong dislike to compassion. Because when I see this man, you know, he clearly just has some hole in him that nothing will fill. I mean, it doesn't matter how much power, yeah. you know, he's got first, it was all the money and then all the models. And now he's got all the power and still, you know, it could be an absolute nobody who just in his nobody yeah. who makes a comment about him and it'll totally set him off. And he just can't be so insecure. And so that really makes me think about it in terms of incorporating our shadow and sort of how do we do that? How does Ashtanga Yoga help us to do that? Well, I think that, you know, seeing our ourselves with the same kind of compassion that you are describing is where it starts. Because whoever is a politician, whether there's someone we relate to or don't relate to, that too is part of our, us. You know, every manifestation of a human being on this planet, we have that potential within ourselves as well. And when we, I've just been in a situation with some people who were really upset with a situation that was going on. And at first I was just not understanding and then realized how much suffering was going on for them. And I was just overwhelmed with this feeling, just as you're saying, of, of you know, compassion for them. The idea of having a sense of empathy with someone who is suffering, and it could be with yourself. And then really grounding in your own physical body, ex bodily experience. And then tuning in repeatedly and figuring out, you know, is there something that can be a support for that situation? And that's how we start cultivating within ourselves a feeling of kindness and a feeling of compassion towards others is to really 
see ourselves in them, but also be able to differentiate between ourselves and them. So being able to draw a line and saying, yeah, this is them, it could be me, but it's not me. And another political figure these days who's amazing is uh, Pope Francis, who has, you know, exemplified this ability to see others and see the potential for himself and others, and then also say, but wait, I'm the Pope, you know, and what can I do to help? And within our own little tiny versions of those worlds, we have that same sort of dynamic going on, even within ourselves, where we have these holes in ourselves that may be the shadow or maybe some injury or pain that has, you know, trauma that has happened to us and not alienating it, but welcoming it and also not becoming so fixated on it that it becomes the dominant thing, welcoming it and then and then embodying whatever we can, whatever parts of, of both sides of it we can, and then really consciously saying, what can I do to help here? So what for me personally, Ashtanga has done is that it is a rigorous form of yoga, of posture practice. And so every time I get on the mat, and as I said, I was very, very, very stiff when I first started practicing, it's always been almost a humiliating joke to me. Um, to get on the mat because it's like, and so it has a built-in aspect of compassion for me because I see this, you know, person, me struggling away day after day for close to 40 years. And it's like, or 30 years now, 40 years with other kinds of yoga. Like, what am I doing? Why am I, it's almost a joke, but as I, you know, do it day in and day out, it makes me see that it keeps me grounded and keeps me humble and keeps me recognizing that things are always changing, that, you know, as much as I would love to control the whole world, I have so little control over even my own thoughts and that, that I can start to almost laugh at the human condition that I happen to have, you know, manifested in this go round. So it keeps me able to feel, you know, that there's hope, that there's kindness in the world. And for me, it's because it is difficult to do. And it's been difficult in different ways over the course of the last 30 years. And it's always different. But it's also not difficult at all because of the feeling when you finish, when you've been moving in conjunction with the breath and the gaze and there have been times, I mentioned at the beginning of this, that, you know, some physical problems I've had with it. And I'm thinking of when I ruined my, or really completely totaled my knee skiing. And then it made me realize, well, I can still move my arms. I can still move my other leg. I can put my legs up in the air and I can still move in conjunction with the breath and the gaze. So that was what became the consistency and it let me let go of, there I go again with let go, but it let me, it forced me to let go of the preconception of what this is what my yoga practice looks like, which it didn't for about a year. It looked very different. And that made me say, oh yeah, that's, boy, I was getting pretty rigid with it. And so that's why I like it for me. And that's why it has worked for me. 
And I think that it's not the only thing, you know, that would work for people. I think the idea, anything that can get us to lighten up on ourselves and to be nicer to ourselves and see the depth of what we have going on inside of ourselves, any practice that really makes us be honest with ourselves is going to do that for us because it's part of our natural programming, I think, to be decent human beings. You know, and and I came to this form of yoga having done a, a fair amount of work with psychology and having gone through some difficult things in my life and being in therapy and having a divorce and but going through the therapy and all of that, being able to kind of outsmart myself and sabotage myself by not going quite under, you know, my self, little ways I would self-deceive. And so in this form of yoga, I just can't do self-deceit. And so it's made me realize that how comfortable I feel when, I've, when I'm being authentic. And even though, you know, I make terrible mistakes and, you know, all of this kind of thing, that what I start to value is our capacity to be real with each other. You mentioned psychology again. You know, I'm curious as someone who did study psychology and then got into yoga, how do you feel those two worldviews complemented each other or didn't? And I'm also curious, you know, what do you think? Are the particular, have you found one more effective than the other? I'm, I'm kind of curious how you see the, the limitations of each and the particular strengths of each of those worlds. I think that they are very complementary. I think that in terms of if someone has some sort of thing, like I, I've had de- depression, that just going to therapy can might work or just doing yoga might work, but that very often having a multifaceted approach to something like that can be even more effective simply because I think it's partly this thing I was just saying where you can get off on a tangent in your mind with one system or another. And and if you have yoga and, and psychology in some ways are not all that related, although I've, I've worked on a actually a uh, study here at the University of Colorado with a woman who was studying yoga, the impact of yoga on postpartum depression. So that's beginning to enter into the psychology world is where does, what does this do to, how do these things impact some of the things like depression? But, you know, I think that having more than one approach to pathological things or to, you know, sort of our personality things can be much better than just doing one, but also finding the right yoga for yourself, the one that works for you, finding the right teacher that works for you so that you, that you find a teacher who gives you the capacity to ask the hard questions, gives you the, the breadth to really study things deeply and and challenges you in certain ways. And the same would be with a therapist, that if it's a a good therapist that really gets into the uh, nitty gritty with you in whatever form you happen to be using uh, within a therapeutic setting, 
So I, I think that they're becoming more and more. Uh, Richard and I also work with an organization called the Mind and Life Institute, which is the organization is primarily started by some neuroscientists and has grown over the last 15 years, or so, I think it's about 15 years. And it's the organization where Buddhist monks have been invited in to be studied. And you may have seen pictures of them on magazines with electrodes in their heads and on their heads to look at the brain patterns that are going on in meditation. And yoga is just now coming into being studied in that organization and by others like people in mind and life. And so I think there's a time right now that we're in where there's becoming an interplay between, you know, contemplative practices and, you know, practices like neuroscience or or psychology, philosophy, etc., but psychology, etc., so it's it's interesting. I think there's a lot of overlap, but they're distinctly different, obviously. I definitely can see a lot of ways in which they complement each other as well. You know, I think Jack Cornfield's The Wise Heart is a great example of how, you know, Western psychology and Buddhist psychology yeah. go together. But, you know, what I was thinking of a little bit when I asked that is I'm a big Ram Das fan, you know, and I'm thinking of how he... It was this, you know, psychology professor really at the top of his field, PhD from Stanford, taught at Stanford and Harvard. And just in the end, you know, he sort of felt that kind of strengthened almost his obsession with his mind as a way to solve things. And it, it almost exacerbated his neuroses. And I went recently to his retreat in Hawaii and Krishnadas, who I believe is a friend of Richard and yourself said a, he was a great speaker. He really blew me away, not only with his music, but with what he had to say. He's just wonderful. He's got an amazing candor and just clear insight the way he speaks. And he just said, you're not going to get out of a prison of thought with more thought. And in sort of that, <laughs> and so I was sort of thinking of Krishnadas's comment when I asked that. And so though I think Western psychology is wonderful. And I can see all these ways in which they complement each other. And especially, you know, if someone has something like trauma or other issues, meditation alone isn't going to do it for him. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit to that as well. And in terms of kind of limitations of trying to come at thought with just more theories and frameworks of the mind. Well, I think that's exactly true. And and in a way, I said it in slightly differently, which was that, you know, if you go into a therapeutic setting and it is, and you become, you've heard Richard and I talk about, you know, the fundamentalist approach, which can filter into anything, whether it's, you know, some form of yoga or some form of therapy, and you think this is it, this is how I am going to solve such and such a problem. You know, on some level, yeah, you can't. I've known a number of longtime meditators who who realize too, you, you know, they need something beyond that in order to get out of the trap their mind has gotten them into, which is a preconceived idea of what the meditation is going to do for them or what the meditation practice is. And so it goes back to the beginning of what I was saying in this whole talk we're having. 
I think, is, you know, no, the mind can't solve the mind's own problems in some ways. And that's true even when you're doing a meditation practice or even a chanting practice. If you have got the preconception that this is what it is going to do or a therapy, you know, a Western style therapy, if, you know, if you are too regimented. And so part of why I think it's a good idea to have, and again, I think when we were talking at a different time, we were talking about not being kind of hodgepodge and just all new agey and picking a little bit from here and a little bit from there. But, and um, that's not at all what I'm saying, but that you, by having, say, two different disciplines that you approach something from, it allows you to not become dogmatic or fundamentalist or asleep in your own um, one area that you've decided this is what I'm doing. I'm doing yoga, or this is what I'm doing. I'm doing therapy, or this is what I'm doing. I'm doing pranayama. So you, or meditation, you don't become just stuck in that one vein, because that is when the mind, the ego, the, you know, the parts of ourselves that separate us out, that either say we're doing it for this reason, or we're doing it the best of anyone in the world or, you know, that's when the ego takes over. That's when the mind takes over. And so again, it boils down to this idea of trust, this idea of openness, inquiry, always continuing to ask questions. And even when you think you know the answer, look again and dig deeper and then just keep digging deeper. And I think that's what a lot of these practices are aimed at. And then we, the people, get into them and sort of, we want our little fundamentalist answer or we want our formula and we want it to work and we want it to work by three o'clock this afternoon. Especially in the U.S., time is money, right? How do I get enlightenment now? I've got to be back to work, you know, in an hour. (laughs) You mentioned something that I kind of want to contextualize for our viewers um, who might not have gotten the full reference. And then I'd love to build on this thought and get your take on it. You know, I'd asked you previously about in this, especially in today's age where we have access to all these different ideas and information, how we're able to study all of these different schools of thought, you know, and many of us, I think, who are from the West and students of Eastern religion naturally find we're interested in not only yoga, but also Buddhism or maybe other facets of Hinduism or Taoism. And I know on the one hand, this is totally understandable and the mind shouldn't become too attached to one worldview, but there's also a danger on the other hand in becoming to ADHD and shopping around to the point where you don't really have focus. And, and Richard and you talk about lineage a lot and the importance of that. But I know that Richard and you are also very into Buddhism as well as Hinduism. And that really attracts me to your teachings because both of those great traditions resonate with me as well. And so I'm wondering, how do you honor your interest in each of those paths while also making sure that you're keeping it a coherent, structured path that doesn't give you mixed messages. Right. That's wonderfully said. And I think it is very important to, when as students, which we continue to be, and I anticipate being till the day I die, 
as students that we, you know, pursue our interests and our questions ever deeper so that, and that's part of the value of a lineage is that you have had teachings that have come down through various generations and that have had, have survived the really important part of any lineage, which is that they are questioned, that people say, question the ideas and the techniques and the theories behind them. And then rather than just saying, well, that's just the way it is, that like, you know, that's just the way it is, that then conversation and thought goes into the the ideas that, of the lineage so that it doesn't become a cult. It doesn't become a dogma that is unwavering. And so the wonderful thing about any of these lineages is that that they have survived the and become enriched by this process of time and of inquiring minds and of communication. In terms of yoga and Buddhism, they are, you know, intimately related. And so one of the things that we do in some of the teaching that and studying that we do is that we find teachers in the Buddhist realm who are open-minded, many are, who can look with us at some of the commonalities between the different lineages. And there are so many things within the some of the classic Buddhist texts that are really paralleled in some of the Indian classic texts, or almost verbatim one to the other. And so it's very fascinating to see how some of the ideas are reflected and also to see that there are also differences. And as within, you know, yoga with there being different lineages within the yoga systems, there are different aspects to Buddhism and different schools of Buddhism. But it but they beneath all of them there is this real common sense of what it means to human nature really is what divine what might be called what divine consciousness or what is beneath this the deepest level the deepest levels of all of us which is this interconnectedness and that's a very contemporary idea also and i know you're going to be talking to richard and he's much more the scholar than i am and but how i interpret a lot of this is from the reading different texts and reading the original texts. And then my perspective is very often to look at them from a contemporary perspective. Like, what does this mean for the daily life of, you know, a woman in the United States in this century? How does this relate? What does that mean in terms of interacting in this world? And so... To answer your question about becoming a little bit overly kind of saying, well, I like this, I don't like this, I like this about this lineage, and I like this about this lineage, and let me make my own lineage, which is kind of the new modern thing that people do. I think the the difficulty with that is that rather than throwing a whole lineage out because there's a problem with it that you don't like, I think it's very valuable to be able to say, well, this is what works for me and for me personally, 
doing an, an asana practice, studying deeply in some of the Indian philosophical perspectives has helped me. And so that's where I feel my roots are. And I feel stable enough in them now that I'm not going to abandon that, but I can say, oh, here's some other interesting stuff. What do I see that complements or makes me question what I've learned within my own tradition? And rather than me taking 15 different types of, of philosophical perspectives that I'm trying to consolidate all into one, my approach would be to say, well, I'm sol- feeling really solid now in the more Indian or Hindu perspective. And for the last 15 years, I've been really looking more closely at, well, how does this relate to Buddhism? And how do I relate to some of those texts? And so then I go directly to those rather than, you know, reading the cliff notes, because you can then, when you go directly to the texts, you then are you know, able to see, to get your own interpretation within your own context. And a thing I regret is that I don't speak Sanskrit and that I don't speak Tibetan, that I don't speak Japanese. So they're part of my limitation is the fact that I have to rely on other people's translations. So one of the things that we recommend and that I find particularly important because Richard can read Sanskrit, but for me, I can't. And so is to read various different interpretations of different texts. And we're fortunate these days due to the internet, etc., that, you know, we have at our fingertips all kinds of ancient texts that we can access and say, wow, how do I compare these? And what are they really trying to say? So I think the advice would be not to be too, you know, not to just flip from one thing to another, but to to take a path that has with some consideration. And that was a great answer. Thank you. I'm I'm curious because you mentioned studying texts from different traditions, and that just made me think when you said it. I'm curious, do you have a text that particularly resonates for you, whether it's a particular sutra or Upanishad or, or anything like that? Do you have any favorite texts that just really kind of tug at your heartstrings or that you find particularly profound? Well, recently we have been working on um, a book on the Bhagavad Gita. And so I've gotten really involved in thinking about that and, and looking at that. And that's a text that has been, you know, that people kind of love or hate and is and which I find quite interesting because it can be taken as a you know highly religious text and a highly you know sort of a text where there it has been interpreted as one sometimes interpreted as one where a text about a battle and therefore what is that about so that's one that I'm currently thinking a lot about and I think that in terms of some of the Tibetan. I, texts. I don't know. I mean, recently I've been looking at a book about the bardos, but the concept of the bardos has really been strong in my mind recently, just in terms of what it actually means to, you know, what a bardo actually is, the idea of what it means to be in a space between moments in time, whether 
and and the loose the loose interpretation of that as being even between breaths or between thoughts and the less you know the less loose thought being the specific time between after physical death so it's that's where i currently am i think with any of these things we go through phases and it's you know you have a book that you're interested in now and then six months at some other book. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah, I'm so happy that you mentioned the Bhagavad Gita because I do really love it. And um, actually, the first time I studied it was with Richard in Sweden. Yeah, and it was really funny. So it happened that within a matter of a year, I studied it with several different teachers. I took some course online from Oxford, the Oxford Center from Hindu Studies. Uh-huh. And then I went to the workshop in Sweden with Richard and studied it, you know, a month or two later. And then I just started studying with Sally Kempton. And a couple months later, her course was on the Bhagavad Gita. So I studied it so in depth all of a sudden. And now I'm actually about to study it with Douglas Brooks as well. So I find that it's a text that you get so much. It's not like, oh, I've read that. I'm, I'm done with it. It truly is one of these texts that you can keep revisiting and get so much more out well, of it. And, and I'm curious how your understanding of that text has evolved over time. And that actually is true with any text, right. you know, and the more you read them, the more of the subtleties you get. And the thing that I've been particularly, you know, we've currently been really thinking about the idea of ritual and sacrifice. I mean, that's just the section we're currently thinking about just in terms of, you know, what is spoken of in the Gita, but then also in terms of our, the part I bring to it is looking at what does that mean in our own daily lives? Like in a way, it's what you and I have been talking about, like what is considered to be a ritual? And in fact, pretty much anything we do in a certain sense is a ritual getting your tea in the morning or getting getting up and getting your tea or your coffee and and what makes a ritual living and what makes it something that's that's sort of another rote habitual activity that we're doing and then the deeper level beyond that of of sacrifice and what does sacrifice mean just in terms there are different kinds of sacrifice that are talked about in the Gita, and then beyond all of those, the sacrifices of mind, the sacrifice of uh, of ethics that sometimes can happen in modern culture. What does that mean, and what do we do? Like, what what damage does sacrifice done in a manner that is not? almost the idea of like an unconditional love, an unconditional sacrifice, meaning you're not doing a sacrifice in order to get to a higher level so that you go to heaven, but you're doing it because you, it's that same thing you were just talking about, because you feel this deep sense of compassion for the circumstance of all. Um, That's why you sacrifice things. And if you don't sacrifice in that way and you're sacrificing or doing rituals for some other gain, then what kind of wear and tear does that do on your psyche, on your own capacity to be just warm and soft and open? And you start realizing that that 
these things that might start off as behaviors that we can take that could increase our ability to be more interconnected can in and of themselves be things that separate us and that start to destroy us. And so how do we find um, the capacity and the strength and the clarity of thinking to stay embodied and grounded in efforts to do these things that from daily rituals and sacrifices to, to more complex things. And they don't have to be religious sacrifices. They're, it's just sort of, or rituals, that in a way, the idea of ritual is something, kind of what we've been talking about this whole time, of seeing the mystery of not knowing and of being human and being embodied and, and making some cognizant action that you take to celebrate that. That, in a way, is a ritual. There's a woman at the University of Virginia who's done a lot of study on this and on modern-day rituals and who talks about the idea of the need for them to be alive rather than, than stagnant. And in a way, that's what we've been talking about this whole time, is that everything we do, we need to stay awake for. We need to that's the good news is that it's never complete. And for some of us, that seems like, oh, no, that's the horrible news. I want everything to be finished and complete. But in another perspective, that's what makes things interesting. And that's what makes things kind of rewarding is that they're always changing and that we always show up for them. Yeah, I think in our culture in particular, we really have lost a lot of sense of ritual and you know, the sacred, I think it's probably particularly true for people who are more educated, you know, and more secular. Your comment about not having ritual made me think of Joseph Campbell talking about how we've really lost rites of passage and initiation in our society. And, you know, whether it's having read some certain books or spending time in other countries where I got to see their rituals and their initiations, I definitely think that there's a lot to that for sure. Yeah, and and within like being in India myself, you know, you also see people who do their rituals and it's just this sort of okay, let me go or you see, you know, I was brought up Catholic and you just see someone doing the rosary really quickly and not really sinking into a deeper level. And so the the idea of the rites of passage or the rituals is that they could be very very rich. And then the problem is that they become rote, and and then they lose their richness. But it is true in our modern world, again, who has time? And yet, anything could, you know, if you put your mind to it, not anything, but, but noticing rites of passage within your own experience is something that would be that doesn't have to be a formal thing that you do, that you belong to some religion to do. It is really a way of marking a passage or a change or something of significance. And it doesn't have to be a particular form that it takes, though that can also be good. I'm curious since we're on this topic, and this will be my last question because I'm conscious of your time and that it's it's getting late where you are. But yeah. I'd love to know on this note of, of ritual, does puja 
or devotional practices, offerings play any role in your personal practice? And I should say whether it's puja or bhakti or any kind of devotional practice. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, absolutely. Yes. And what the value of that for me is, is a focusing of the mind and the recognition that there is something far greater than me and that reminder. Yeah. Yeah. I've come to appreciate the value in devotional practice and it's almost, and this will sound our theme for the night, paradoxical to people, but it's almost like even if you are, and I'm someone who's very skeptical and I would say no longer atheist, but more agnostic. But I've come to appreciate that there's <laughs> a value in devotional practices. And it's almost like there's reason to praise or do devotion, even if you think no one's listening. <laughs> but it's because right. it gives you, like you said, a sense that there's something larger than yourself. Yeah. And even more of a reason to do <laughs> it if you think no one's listening. It really, it's like... I was speaking with a friend the other day who is a brilliant woman who's written a book on medical ethics. And she was saying, you know, that ethical behavior is what you do. You know that ethical behavior is what you do that is in line with ethics when you when no one's looking. In other words, it's not like you're doing it for someone else. And that's such an important thing. It's like, yeah, you could have great ethics and then go out and rob a bank when no one knew it was you. But no, it's when no one is looking that you do the most ethical thing. And then you know that that's really, truly ethical behavior. And that's the same with a puja or with a devotional practice, is you're not doing it for any reason other than pure. And that's why I use the term unconditional uh, sacrifice, like we might say unconditional love. It's not like you're doing the sacrifice in order to get somewhere. You're doing it because essentially out of love. That's a beautiful note on which to end. Before we do so, I want to give you an opportunity to let people know where they can find out about you know any upcoming workshops or retreats that you and Richard are offering or how they can get in touch. Yeah. Well, we have a website and it's richardfreemanyoga.com and we update it periodically. So you have to be patient and keep checking back because we're not we're not the best at keeping it updated, but we do update it a few times a year. And I want to thank you so much for for having such a really wonderful, inviting conversation with me. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mary. I really appreciate it. I hope that you enjoyed that conversation with Mary. I certainly did. I really tried to frame it, some of the questions in a way, so as to strike a balance between it being accessible to those people who were new to yoga, while also going more in depth to be interesting to people who are already quite far down the path of yoga or other contemplative practices. So hope you enjoyed it. I would love to hear from you hearing what you enjoyed about the conversation or constructive criticism about the show, things that you would like to hear, suggestions for guests. We just love feedback so that I can deliver more quality conversations to the audience. So the best way to have that conversation is through contacting me on Twitter. The handle is at Hacking the Self. You can also go to the Hacking the Self Facebook page, which is another great way Social media is kind of the best way to have 
conversations in those two platforms, Twitter and Facebook are the ones on which I'm most active. But if you also want to send me an email, you can do that at hackingtheself at gmail.com and would love to hear from you. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider supporting the show. And you can do that in a number of ways by sharing the podcast on your social media platforms, by telling friends about it, by going to the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash hacking the self and making a small contribution. Would love to try to keep the show ad free. And I'm running a test pilot with that to see if we can make that happen so far. That is not the case. I think so many people are used to getting things for free in this day and age, which I can empathize with, but I want to make this a sustainable project. And so I'm going to try to avoid doing ads, but it may come to that. But either way, I just, I'd be grateful for your support. If people even just gave a dollar an episode, it would really go a long way towards covering production costs and the time that go into researching and doing these podcasts. So I really thank you for listening. I thank you for your interest and for your curiosity. I have Richard, uh, Mary's husband, who's going to be on the podcast next week, who's an absolutely brilliant and fascinating guy. And I'm looking forward to talking with him and delivering that conversation. And I also have a number of really great guests lined up for you. I spoke to a lot of people from the psychedelic community before and now I'm really reaching out to a lot of people within the, I guess, whatever you want to call it, the larger community of yoga and Buddhism and sort of Eastern wisdom traditions. And we'll be delivering a series of conversations for you with wonderful teachers from those traditions. And Mary's really the first conversation within that series and look forward to delivering you many more. I'm really excited about some of the guests who have committed to coming on the show. So stay tuned and I'll talk to you next week. This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hacking the self. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self, optimizing physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.